Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. If this week's cult is to be believed, there are already human clones walking among us. On December 27, 2002, the corporation CloneAid held a press conference. Their CEO, Dr. Bridget Boisselier, announced that the day before, they had successfully engineered the first human clone. The baby, named Eve, was claimed to have been an exact genetic copy of her mother. The baby was not present at the press conference, nor were her parents. No evidence of this extraordinary claim was presented. Boisselier was not only a chemist, she was also a bishop in the atheist religion known as Raelism. Their founder, a man known as Rael, also offered no evidence of his extraordinary claims. But that didn't stop him from amassing thousands of followers and achieving fame and fortune in the process. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today we're continuing our deep dive into realism. Claude Vorion went from aspiring pop singer to race car journalist to prophet who communed with extraterrestrials. He claims to have been contacted by an alien race to spread a message of peace and love. You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Everyone always asks us how they can help support the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review online. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast, and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Last week, we followed the upbringing and early career of Claude Vorion, also known as Rael. He was born out of wedlock to a Jewish refugee and a 15-year-old French girl in Vichy, France, on September 30, 1946. According to Rael, when he was 33, he was approached by an alien race known as Elohim, who genetically engineered all life on Earth millennia ago. Rael was to be their newest prophet, spreading a message of peace. This week, we continue our look at the rise of Raelism, the controversy surrounding their views on sexuality, and their quest to create human clones. In 1979, Rael published his third book, Let's All Welcome the Extraterrestrials. In this piece, he revealed an extraordinary new chapter about his trip to the Elohim planet. During that trip, Yahweh confessed to being Rael's true biological father. Rael's mother was supposedly taken onto an Elohim spaceship and inseminated when he was 15, without her knowledge. Rael also revealed that Yahweh had employed this tactic before, with the Virgin Mary. 
According to Rael, he was the half-brother of Jesus. There's a lot to unpack there. Let's start with the cavalier nature with which Rael treats his own mother as an unknowing vessel for childbirth. Rael told the story of the Elohim impregnating two women without their consent and presented these stories as some kind of technological miracle. This shows that Rael, the author of this story, looked at women purely as objects to be used for whatever purpose he saw fit. This lack of empathy is a big indicator of narcissism. Another side of narcissism is a grandiose view of one's own importance. It's hard to place yourself much higher than the half-brother of Jesus. Realism was presented by Rael as an atheist religion in which the beings worshipped the Elohim, who were not mystical so much as an advanced race. However, Rael placed himself on par with Jesus Christ in a thinly veiled attempt to present himself as a divine being. It's notable in the writing here that Rael has replaced his real father, Marcel, with this new Elohim father. He described Marcel as being chosen by the Elohim, as a man who would look after Rael financially and raise him decently. However, most accounts point to Marcel being more or less an absentee father. Rael wrote that this revelation from Yahweh was the most touching moment for him. He and Yahweh shared a deep connection of love. This could be wishful thinking on Rael's part. It's possible he never had a moment like this with his real father. So instead, he invented a new father to bond with. It's also possible he felt this version of the story had great commercial appeal, so he pushed his biological father aside in favor of his interstellar one. In later interviews, when asked if this impregnation was possible, Rael's mother shrugged and smiled. She claimed she slept with her window open, so why not? It's easy to laugh, but her response showcases Rael's superior ability to manipulate. So committed was Rael to this story that those around him just went along with it. To try and correct him would be an uphill battle. So instead, family members shrugged and kept the peace. In his writings, he presented the practice of sensual meditation, which claimed to be a way of harmonizing one's mind and body by exciting all the senses along with one's own sexuality. In later years, Calgary Sun journalist Bridget McCann infiltrated the sect to investigate the claims of cloning talked about at the top of the show. Her reporting gave further details of the practice of sensual meditation. She reported that all new members of the cult were expected to perform a group session of sensual meditation. However, the meditation quickly dissolved into a form of group masturbation. The sessions demanded members touch themselves all over their body. They also practiced generating body odor, licking sweat and using mirrors, closely examining their own anus. This could have been Ryle's attempt to legitimize his own fetishes. It could also have been a way of making members feel their most vulnerable. The more vulnerable they felt, the easier it was for Rael to get them to follow him. Many people feel shame and embarrassment when it comes to sexual behaviors. With these meditations, Rael helped them reclaim some of that shame, presenting him as a comforting, forgiving figure. This may also partly be what cult expert Robert J. Lifton calls milieu control, where everyone present shares a common belief or practice. The new recruit will not want to be one who speaks up against these practices. Therefore, they become more susceptible to suggestion. There are reports that some of these meditations evolved into full-blown orgies. Since the very beginning, Rael's movement has preached a complete acceptance of all sexual practices. 
which was very progressive at the time. However, these sessions, which demanded new members practically engage in public masturbation, also shows an unhealthy view of consent. Reports of these sessions growing out of control led to the movement gaining a reputation for throwing orgies. These reports were backed up by a later interview with Rael's first wife, Marie Paul. In an interview with The Mail, Marie Paul said for years she would come home to see sessions of naked people in her living room or walk in on Rael having sex with other women. She estimated the number of women he brought home to be in the hundreds. He showed no regard for her feelings, just a constant hunger for more gratification. Vanessa's going to take over the psychology here. A reminder, she's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. According to a study conducted by Stanford University, this is a textbook example of machismo, which is a concept that dominates male sexual culture. It perpetuates the idea that men have uncontrollable and constant sexual appetites and can take on as many partners as they choose, while women should remain virginal and pure. While some men genuinely enjoy this culture, many feel pressured to engage in these types of behaviors, desensitizing them over time. They see sex as a conquest and status symbol, so the more they have, the more manly and admirable they should be. Despite Rael's obvious infidelity and possible machismo, Marie Paul stayed with him to keep the family stable. However, she never believed in his movement, nor did she worship him like his followers did. That said, two people within the household did become followers of Rael, his son Romuel and his daughter Aurora. According to Marie Paul, Rael's use for her ran out in 1985. In her words, quote, he had turned the children against me, and one day he simply said he had no more use for me, end quote. It appears Rael viewed even his own wife as an object to be discarded. She was a non-believer, and therefore a possible threat to his carefully controlled existence. Marie Paul was left with nothing. As Rael's enterprise grew, she had to borrow money from her mother to scrape by. She returned to nursing to earn a living. Even worse, she was cut off from having any contact with her children for years. They shunned any attempt she made to reconnect, convinced her father had left her for a reason. Marie Paul concentrated on rebuilding her own life in the hopes that one day her children would find their way back to her. We have no reason to believe that Rael felt any remorse for the harsh way he treated Marie Paul. He wanted to be worshipped by adoring crowds, and anything that stood in the way of that was tossed out. The 1980s were a time of massive growth in media and entertainment, as television became more common and began to unite a global audience. Rael saw endless opportunities to attract more followers by manipulating the media. He was constantly working to get himself as much media exposure as he could. Despite the otherworldly elements of his claims, he was using a common marketing technique to spread his message. Get in front of as many eyeballs as possible. The more appearances he made, the more books he sold, the more followers he got. Every time he went in front of the camera, he increased his chances for fame and fortune. Rael spent much of the 80s bringing this message to a global audience. He had his book published in multiple languages, in countries all across Europe, the U.S., and Japan. By 1987, realism was estimated to have ballooned to 20,000 followers around the world. 
Ryle's message of alien creators and sexual freedom was appealing to people who already had tremendous interest in both. The 60s and 70s saw a sexual revolution wherein people pushed the boundaries of non-traditional sex. It was also an era of extraterrestrial mania, when movies and literature became obsessed with the possibility of contact with aliens. People began to theorize that aliens manipulated the development of human civilizations. This fascination with extraterrestrials carried over into the 1980s. In a later interview, former member Dominique Saint-Hilaire offered insight into the appeal. Dominique was an alien enthusiast. She believed in the ancient astronaut stories that were becoming more prevalent in pop culture. So when she heard Rael's story, it validated her own views and she felt a connection to him. Additionally, many young people were sexually curious and eager to experiment, which drew them to realism. Rael was tapping into these people's desires and manipulating them into his fold. During the 1980s, realism not only flourished in terms of the number of followers, it also became highly organized. Rael established a cleric system of priests, known as guides, who reported to bishops who, in turn, reported to him. All the followers also practiced a type of prayer which they claimed was a telepathic worship of the Elohim. As a teenager, Rael attended Catholic boarding schools at the demand of his mother. There, he probably picked up structures and rituals which he folded into his own movement. He was willing to use whatever system was necessary to keep himself in power. Campsites and communes were established where Raelians could worship the Elohim in private. They also practiced sensual meditation and various sexual activities, away from a society they felt was too conservative. Rael also resurrected his music career. He wrote numerous hymns which worshipped the Elohim. He may not have made Billboard magazine, but Rael did find cheering crowds singing his songs. He would perform concerts for his followers at seminars and retreats. Sometimes these performances would be the main event at the end of a long day of meditation. A symptom of narcissism is the need for constant adoration. His followers eagerly fulfilled that need as they sang songs of the Elohim. In 1988, he would make an appearance on the famous Irish talk show, The Late Late Show, hosted by Gay Byrne. This media appearance was the perfect example of Rael's appeal. He was an eccentric figure, wearing a long white-robed outfit that resembled what he wore in the Elohim homeworld. Rael told his story in a gentle tone, emphasizing the message of love he was instructed to give. The audience could be heard openly laughing at him throughout the interview, but he was completely unfazed. He smiled through the snickering. Think about this from the viewpoint of a potential recruit. Viewers who believed in an alien creation theory probably experienced some laughing and mocking in their travels. To see Rael handle it all with a smile with such grace must have been very attractive. Rael even laughed along with them. He told the audience he knew his tale sounded crazy, but he still never flinched in his veracity. He came across as a man who utterly believed in what he was saying. In interviews like this, Rael often pushed his book flagrantly. He told the skeptical interviewers and audiences over and over again, in order to truly understand, one must read my book. Potential followers who wanted that understanding gladly forked over their money to Rael. He operated under the old sales axiom, always be closing. 
This filled up Rael's coffers very effectively. He lived off book sales and member donations. Raelians were required to give Rael 1% of their annual income. While reports vary on how much Rael received over the years, it became evident he was living a pretty luxurious lifestyle. He traveled around the world without any material wants. Rael was always careful not to flaunt his wealth. Much of his income went toward plane tickets, hotels, and lawyers. When asked about his wealth in interviews, he smiled and said the Elohim have no restrictions on people living comfortably. He was careful to put no restrictions on material comforts in any of his writings so he could justify however much money he made from the donations of his supporters. In the late 1980s, Rael was married a second time. Lisa Sunagawa was a Raelian follower of his from Japan. Little is known about this marriage. Even the exact dates are up for debate. It's believed they were married sometime in the late 1980s and split around 1992. Lisa remained within the movement for years after their divorce. It's possible that this marriage merely served as a means of allowing Rael easy access to Japan to recruit new followers there. Lisa's devotion, however, was without question. In an interview with the Sun Sentinel many years later, Lisa described Rael as the most intelligent person, love itself. Rael's second wife was much more of a believer than his first. This type of submission was probably exactly what he was looking for to replace the more independent Marie Paul. Some might go so far as to say that pursuing an Asian woman was on purpose, and although there is little to indicate that Rael only sought out Asian women, he did portray several traits of this line of thinking. Dr. Gol Ozen Sadi writes that Asian women are often fetishized in a way that is, upon further examination, misogynist and debasing. Quote, they're submissive, man-pleasing sex kittens, or in a more palatable phrase I've heard, have great personalities, end quote. If Rael was obsessed with control over everyone around him, it makes sense that he might have felt that Lisa Sunagava would be the demure, self-sacrificing partner he'd hoped for. But despite some fleeting marital bliss, things were going to get a lot more complicated for Rael. Around the same time in the late 1980s, a Raelian by the name of Jean Paraga was arrested for drug smuggling. Jean was arrested at the French border for trying to smuggle hashish in a stolen car. Rael helped him gain legal counsel and a favorable prison stay. Rael had no way of knowing that upon his release, Paraga would soon become Rael's greatest enemy and attempt to take his life. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, let's continue the story. Jean Paraga had a long criminal record of smuggling contraband and dealing drugs. It's unclear why he joined the Raelians, though it's possible he was seeking purpose or meaning in his troubled life. It may have also been to please his Raelian wife, with whom he had two children. The French Raelians raised funds for Paraga to secure a better lawyer and a more comfortable prison stay. However, when he was released in the late 1980s, he was shocked to learn that his wife and two children were living with a Raelian guide. Certainly a jarring way to find out you're in an open marriage. Paraga was enraged. He did not endorse his wife's new relationship. He believed his family was brainwashed by the Raelian movement. Furthermore, he believed that Rael himself pushed his wife into sleeping with another man. Paraga went from seeing the Raelians as benefactors to his freedom to cultists who stole his family. 
cut off from his wife and children, he came to believe they were prisoners of their aliens. He looked to extreme measures to try and free them. He left death threats on the answering machine of their alien camp, where he believed they were being held. After being on the inside of the cult, it's possible Paraga saw how difficult it would be to use conventional methods to get through to his family. Paraga was also probably driven by pure anger at his family being taken away from him. In August 1992, Paraga showed up at a Raelian seminar with a gun, intending to assassinate Rael. However, security and local police were on hand. Paraga's attempt to kill Rael was foiled before he came anywhere near him. After his attempted attack failed, he was even more determined to extract revenge on Rael. And because Rael was so eager to seek the spotlight, he wasn't exactly hard to track down. On October 11, 1992, Rael appeared on the television talk show Ciel Monmardi, hosted by journalist Christophe Duchevon. On the show, the sexual practices of the Raelians were challenged by a panel consisting of a priest, a psychologist, and a social worker. But then Rael was shocked by a surprise guest, Jean Paraga. It sounds like something out of Jerry Springer. But by all accounts, this was a deadly serious ambush. This time, instead of using a gun, Paraga used his anguish as a father cut off from his children to take down Rael. He claimed that his wife and family were prisoners of Rael. He also brought up a tragic accident at the Raelian camp in 1991. A boy had fallen off his bicycle and fell into an empty swimming pool that was under construction. The boy died from his injuries. Paraga claimed that this boy's death was a sacrifice to the Elohim. However, we have no evidence to corroborate that claim. It's likely the boy's death was a tragic accident. Rael's game has always been manipulating stories to his own ends. This show, it can be argued, beat Rael at his own game. Paraga's criminal past was never brought up. He was presented as a father desperate to win back his family. It was a tactic that worked. The perception of Rael in France changed. He went from a quirky hippie talking to aliens to a dangerous cultist who destroyed families. Rael saw his home base was quickly becoming hostile, so he relocated to Quebec. There was a strong Raelian following there, and in this early age of the internet, the stories from France didn't follow him. The ambush by Jean Paragard didn't stop Rael from expanding Raelism through mass media appearances once he relocated. His love of the spotlight was too strong. Now based out of Quebec, Rael suddenly found himself close to American media, during the mid-1990s, he was profiled in major publications, such as the San Jose Mercury, the Miami Herald, and the gray lady herself, the New York Times. These articles describe Rael as eccentric and strange, but they printed his story and his message. While most readers scoffed at the bizarre tale, Rael was able to successfully get through to new recruits. Membership numbers at this time were reported to be around 40,000 people worldwide. Rael's need for fame brought Raelism out into the open. It's easy to understand why many members didn't recognize this as a cult. They weren't operating out of a backwoods cabin or secret basement. This was a new religion, a new way of thinking, being legitimized by the press, even if there was a mocking tone to the coverage. As we mentioned before, Rael got the chance to pursue his passion for singing by making music about the Elohim. 1994 saw Rael return to his other passion, race car driving. 
Several Japanese and European Raelians sponsored a professional race car for Rael. Publicly, Rael agreed to start racing, provided the money wasn't taken from the funding for the Elohim embassy. Rael claimed that he was ordered by the Elohim to build a great embassy on Earth. Once that was completed, the Elohim would present themselves to all of mankind. One would think that all money raised by the Raelians should be going toward building the embassy, but reports since have shown that this was not the case. The fact that any money was spent on Rael's racing showed exactly where his priorities lie. Rael raced professionally for the next six years. In the 1990s, he was also very busy off the racetrack. He founded several different organizations and corporations, all of which had the intention of further spreading the Raelian message. In 1997, Rael created a corporation which would become known as CloneAid. This group had one mission, crack the key to eternal life as described by the Elohim. They were dedicated to developing technology that could create biological robots, or as we commonly know them, human clones. Rael had continued to publish books expanding the Raelian message. By 1997, Rael published at least half a dozen books, and his latest was called The True Face of God. In it, he continued to loosen sexual restrictions. He wrote that parents needed to teach their children about sexual behavior. In the book, he wrote, quote, saying nothing to one's child is bad. Teaching them the utility is better, but it is not yet enough. We have to explain to them how to use it in order to get pleasure, end quote. In other words, he's telling parents to physically instruct their children on sexual activities. This outraged many critics. They claimed that Rael's writings were removing guilt from deviant acts toward children. Pedophiles read these words and felt perfectly justified in their actions. Rael was preaching that these assaults would actually be done for the child's own good. The writings of Rael were being interpreted to mean that these adults were not harming children. The adults were teaching children. This is a common defense amongst child molesters. A woman known publicly as Corinne F. told a harrowing tale to a French TV news program. Her teenage daughter's boyfriend came to her with terrible news. Her daughter was being sexually assaulted by her father, who was a recently converted Raelian. At first, Corinne was skeptical of such a horrible story, but then she called her husband to find out if it was true. He confessed right away to committing the sexual assault. The ease of his confession shows that he felt his behavior was justified in some way. Rael was becoming known as someone who encouraged incest and pedophilia. In response, he went on a PR offensive. He issued numerous statements and gave interviews that categorically denied that Raelism endorsed pedophilia in any way. Rael said in interviews that it is, quote, not the role of parents to initiate children into sex, end quote. This was the exact opposite of what he wrote in The True Face of God. He claimed that what he meant was that young people shouldn't feel guilty about masturbation. The cult leader sounded more like a politician giving whatever spin was necessary to save his empire. Despite the controversy, Rael did not steer his movement away from sexual freedom. They established a bracelet system for their meditation sessions and seminars. The bracelets signified whether one was straight, gay, monogamous, or polyamorous. They also indicated if one was underage, though soon no one underage would be allowed to attend these sessions any longer. 
the fact that underage people were ever allowed anywhere near sessions that potentially contained public masturbation and sexual behavior is deeply disturbing. Rael showed zero consideration toward the damage this could do to a child. He was only interested in justifying his own sexual satisfaction. His narcissism was on full display with this practice. During the same time frame in the late 1990s, Rael gave Aurelian baptism to a new follower, Sophie de Nivarville. The baptism consisted of Aurelian guide telepathically transmitting her DNA to a nearby Elohim spaceship. At the time of this baptism, Sophie was 15 years old. Rael and Sophie were married the very next year when she was 16. The brazenness of Rael marrying a girl of this age during this public controversy is stunning. Despite all of his earlier denials of supporting adult sex with children, Rael's own behavior was damning. In the early 2000s, Raelism targeted the Catholic Church. They jumped on the systemic child abuse perpetuated by the clergy as a way to deflect their own negative publicity. They pounded home the message without any subtlety. The Catholic Church victimized children. Raelism did not. This is a classic example of deflection. Rael found a bigger villain than his own group and went on the attack. They wanted to appear chivalrous, coming to the aid of victimized children in the hopes that no one would examine them too closely. But this was not Raelism's only controversy to weather. The early 2000s saw a global debate on the ethics of human cloning. President Clinton sought to ban research on it within the United States, and his successor, President Bush, echoed those sentiments. Nevertheless, a congressional committee was formed to examine the subject. On March 28, 2001, Rael was one of the people who were called to testify on the subject. Rael and the chief scientist at CloneAid, Dr. Bridget Boisselier, had claimed that they had developed the technology to successfully clone human beings. They said that they were planning on putting this into practice. Congress wanted to hear their thoughts on the matter. Rael testified before Congress wearing long white robes and paraded his cloning claims without hesitation. They testified along with other experts in the field, several of whom pushed strenuously for a ban. Rael and Boisselier, however, testified that human cloning carried enormous health benefits and could prolong life. They also claimed to have the remains of a deceased baby and said they were going to proceed with cloning her at the parent's request. Again, he expresses a total disregard for the suffering of others. Rael convinced these poor grieving parents that he could bring back their daughter. He then brought their story to Congress for his own publicity and to feed his own fame. He confidently boasted that this girl would be brought back from the dead when in fact that was impossible. He was taking advantage of a family in tragedy. The panel was asked if they would be willing to be cloned themselves. Rael said no, because he already had children. He said his children would carry on his legacy, so there was no need for a clone. This is a significant contradiction in his narrative. In his second book, Extraterrestrials Took Me to Their Planet, Rael wrote that the Elohim made a biological robot of him. That robot was identical to him in every way. It was essentially a clone. However, Rael didn't mention this to Congress. Furthermore, cloning is the key to the Elohim granting eternal life. Right here, under oath, Rael undermines one of the major tenets of his own story. He's very careful not to say anything that will get him laughed out of the room. 
He talks about health care and the Constitution and only touches upon the Elohim. Rael was in complete and total control of his story at all times. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now let's continue our story. At the turn of the century, Rael found himself engrossed in scandal after scandal, ranging from promoting pedophilia to making human clones. In 2001, the same year that Rael testified before Congress, French television reported on a stunning admission Rael had made to a friend. Roland Chevalier was a childhood friend of Rael's. They had gotten dinner together a few years earlier. Roland asked Rael point blank if he was lying about the existence of the Elohim. According to Roland, Rael said, quote, Yes, I lied. I can tell you that I lied. Anyway, you knew that already. End quote. In his very first media appearance in 1974, Rael said that if you didn't believe his story, you should give him credit as a science fiction author. It's possible that Rael really wanted to brag to someone that he was able to invent a complex story about aliens and convince thousands of people that he was telling the truth. At the time of this dinner, Roland was recovering from a divorce. Rael offered for Roland to spend the night with the girl who accompanied him. Roland saw that the girl was deeply under Rael's spell. Offering a girl to Roland is more evidence of Rael's total objectification of women. Their purpose is to serve and please. Their feelings are irrelevant and secondary to Rael's. Rael sued Roland over the story and lost. Rael was ordered to pay a small fine to Roland as damages. Rael had to prove his story was not a lie in order for the court to rule in his favor. He couldn't, and therefore the court didn't. The lack of evidence might have worked on his followers, but it didn't work with a judge. While Rael may not have flaunted his wealth, there did seem to be a lot of money spent on lawyers. Former Raelians and investigative journalists often found themselves hit with some kind of defamation lawsuit from Rael. Rael did not greet dissension with his message of peace. He treated these critics as a threat to his empire. While he smiled energetically on TV, his lawyers attacked those who dared question the validity of Raelism. Despite losing most of these cases, Rael remained litigious. The idea of being challenged seemed to infuriate Rael. In the early 2000s, Rael created a mission for himself which became a top priority. He would establish an order of women within the movement. First, there was a group of 165 women, all selected by Rael, to act as missionaries. They also served to welcome new recruits and to see to whatever Rael needed. This was the Order of the White Angels. Then there was the more exclusive order of the Pink Angels. These would be six of the most beautiful Raelian women they could find. They were auditioned in casting call-like fashion with headshots and interviews. Rael went from testifying before Congress one day to auditioning beautiful women shortly after. He may have felt like this was the zenith of his life. He was shining in the spotlight. His organization had 55,000 members globally. He was talking to Congress and the press, all the while using his movement to take advantage of impressionable young women. Once selected, the Pink Angels would take a vow of what might be called Raelian celibacy. The Pink Angels were not allowed to have sex with any human men to keep them pure for the Elohim. 
When the Elohim finally arrived on Earth, the pink angels would be there to please them sexually. The pink angels were allowed to have sex with each other. They were also allowed to have sex with the Elohim, which meant they were also allowed to have sex with Rael. Remember, according to his writings, his real father was Yahweh, so that made Rael part Elohim, which meant the only man on earth the pink angels could have sex with was Rael. There was no other interpretation here. With the pink angels, Rael created his own private harem. While Rael promoted sex within his organization, he also used sex to bring new members into the fold. Several former members have said they were recruited by strippers and sex workers. He even created a group called Rael's Girls. This was a group of women who worked in the sex trade, but were also Raelians. Rael boasted that this group was to give sex workers pride in their profession. But he was really using these young women to prey on impressionable new followers. People seek the services of a sex worker for a variety of reasons, one of which is sex addiction. According to doctor and author Joe Court, sex addicts are likely to also suffer from other disorders, including substance abuse, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, and depression. They all crave a sense of comfort and belonging, making them more susceptible to falling into a cult, a place where they belong. Rael used an already oppressed class to prey on other marginalized and oppressed groups in a disturbing effort to grow his numbers. Just after Christmas in 2002, CloneAid called a press conference. Dr. Bridget Boisselier announced to the gathered reporters that CloneAid had succeeded in cloning a human baby girl named Eve. The story made headlines around the globe. It was covered by major news outlets, ranging from The Guardian to CNN. One of the most significant things about the story was the absence of Eve, or any baby for that matter. Dr. Boisselier presented her findings very much the same way Rael did, with no physical evidence whatsoever. This may not be so surprising, as Boisselier had been a practicing Raelian since 1992. The absence of Eve and the mother she was supposedly cloned from did not go unnoticed by the press. They covered the story, but they also covered the many scientists calling fraud. Scientists greeted the news with either great skepticism or great concern. Even the Vatican denounced the claim as, quote, the expression of a brutal mentality that lacks any human or moral consideration, end quote. For decades now, Rael had laughed along with the scorn and mockery he received as long as it gave him exposure to potential new followers. Part of Rael must have been thrilled that an institution as revered as the Vatican was paying attention to him. At the same time, these condemnations could permanently damage the image of Raelism. The press zeroed in on Rael. Up to this point, he was seen as a quirky oddball talking to aliens. In 2003, he claimed to be behind the greatest scientific discovery of the century, with no proof whatsoever. People were now asking, just who was this guy? It's one thing to navigate talk shows and fluff pieces on the news. Rael was now going up against the biggest wave of scrutiny he would ever face. The criticism was even more than he had faced during the incest scandal, which had remained pretty limited to France. On January 12, 2003, the English newspaper The Mail interviewed Marie Paul, his first wife. It was here that the revelations of his wild infidelity first surfaced. Marie Paul held nothing back, calling Rael abusive. 
He had no consideration for her emotional well-being and completely manipulated her for his own good. In this interview, Marie Paul was emotional and angry. The scars that Rael left with her ran deep. Something else revealed in this interview was that Marie Paul was finally able to reconnect with her children. At this time, their daughter Aurora was 28 and son Romuel was 26. They had finally wrangled themselves free from Rael's control. While Aurora has very much stayed away from the media, Romuel gave a rare interview in 2003. Romuel said he always had some doubts in his father's story of the Elohim. After several years, it appeared the doubt overcame the belief. He and his sisters stepped away from the religion. However, even if Rael made it all up, Romuel believed his father acted out of love and was still someone to be admired. This shows the advanced level of manipulation Rael was able to achieve. Despite his blatant selfishness, people still believed he was a messenger of love. Around this time, Ryle's work was coming under additional scrutiny from the sci-fi community. Soon, he was accused of plagiarism. One example of the book he plagiarized is Flying Saucers Have Landed by George Adamski, published in 1953. In it, Adamski describes a UFO landing in front of him, carrying a small gray creature in a one-piece bodysuit. All of these things were very similar to the ones Ryle describes. Maybe Rael doesn't deserve that credit as a science fiction author. The tropes described in both books were commonplace in UFO lore, but there is other evidence that not everything in Rael's narrative is of his own making. French author Jean Sondy wrote a book in the late 1960s connecting the Bible to the theory of ancient astronauts. In a specific example, Sondy wrote that the Elohim were aliens misidentified as gods by primitive peoples. Santi's book came out seven years before Rael's. There's also a strong similarity to Osho, a Hindu guru who created much controversy with his open views toward sexuality. Rael's views on sexual freedom closely resembled those of Osho. Rael's white-robed outfit was also said to be heavily influenced by Osho's. Many of these connections were put together after the advent of the Internet. With a massive amount of information at the fingertips of many of his members, it was getting harder for Rael to maintain complete control over what his followers knew about his story. Rael's journey began in 1973. Information moved much differently back then. It's likely he didn't think many people would be able to put two and two together while he had them under his spell. The internet allowed former members to reach out to each other, they compared notes and found the one thing Rael never provided, evidence. They presented the proof that he was a fraud who made up his story based on the works of others for his own gain. Rael kept up his own media offensive. He went on numerous media outlets with Dr. Bridget Boisselier to promote the benefits of cloning. He was tailoring his message to appeal to people's humanity. During a break on a CBC interview in 2003, Ryle was caught whispering to Boisselier about how they have to appeal to mothers and make them cry with their story. Ryle was truly adept at using the media to manipulate his message. There was a very good reason why Ryle was pushing the cloning story so hard. He wasn't just reporting on the scientific find. He was selling it. The Washington Post reported that CloneAid was charging a mere $200,000 for their cloning services. The company has claimed over a dozen successful clones have been engineered. 
Ryle obviously saw cloning as a huge cash cow. CloneAid claimed they were helping people who were dealing with the tragic deaths of their children or family members with severe illnesses. Like the Elohim, these families remained unseen by anyone but Rael. Once again, he provided zero proof and hoped people would believe him. At the same time, the obsession with cloning was driving many former members away. Former members told the press they were becoming disillusioned with the cause. They had discovered Rael's manipulative side. Leaving a cult happens for a variety of reasons. It seems that many former members were able to finally see Ryle's sense of self-importance. He lived a life of luxury in an ivory tower as the guide of guides. Also, many of the sexual practices seen at Raelian events seemed to have crossed the line for some members. March 2003 saw the beginning of the Iraq War. Ryle pounced on the chance to join the anti-war protests, which were prevalent at the time. He put his own spin on it by having female Raelian members appear topless in said protests. While this may have garnered some cheers from some of the male protesters at the time, it's still another example of Rael using women for their bodies. This stunt was a salacious way for Rael to stay in the headlines and potentially attract members from the anti-war movement. That same year, Calgary Sun media reporter Bridget McCann infiltrated Raelism and posed as a member. She even received Aurelian baptism from Rael himself. She exposed many of the sexual practices we've been describing during this episode. She also reported on the intense security that surrounded Rael. Despite being all smiles on television, it appeared the 1992 assassination attempt by Jean Paragat lingered in Rael's mind. He had bodyguards who were willing to take a bullet for him if there was another assassination attempt, which Rael felt was imminent. Because of the anti-war protests, Rael was apparently convinced that George W. Bush personally wanted him dead. He described himself as a hated enemy of the leader of the free world. Again, Rael is putting himself in the pantheon of major world leaders. As the 2000s progressed, CloneAid made more claims of cloning babies in countries all over the world. They continued to offer no proof of said babies. Meanwhile, Rael continued his tried-and-true tactic of using the media to sell his brand. He appeared in Religious, the Bill Maher documentary on fringe religions. As Rael told his story, all of his books were on display. Despite the mocking tone of the piece, Rael was still plugging his merchandise like a carnival barker. In 2007, Rael attempted to go viral on social media by creating a theme day to go along with frivolous holidays like National Hot Dog Day or National Best Friends Day, Rael created National Go Topless Day. There was no official recognition for this holiday outside his group. This day was exactly what it sounded like, a day for women to go around topless. He claimed this was to restore women's equal rights, to be legally topless just like men. Rael again overly sexualized and objectified women with this holiday, but even more galling, he tried to hide behind a facade of women's rights to do so. While he was able to pull this off, there was and remains much backlash from many women's groups and feminist websites about this holiday. They were not buying what he was selling. One also has to wonder why this issue took such a priority. Why was there no National Elohim Day? Why not an Elohim Embassy Day? Rael's choice of holiday shows what his real priorities were. 
A priority of the Raelian movement was supposed to be the building of the embassy to welcome the Elohim on Earth. Once this embassy was built, the Elohim would reveal themselves to mankind. The lack of progress toward this goal since 1973 was remarkable. No land had been bought, no brick had been placed toward what was supposed to be the most important mission of the movement. But if the embassy were ever to be built, Rael would have to produce the Elohim, so it was absolutely in his best interest to keep the embassy on blueprints only. The movement lobbied to build the embassy in Jerusalem several times. They were denied at every turn. Rael most likely knew this would happen, but these doomed attempts allowed him to keep up the appearance of trying to build the embassy. Meanwhile, he engaged in the real purpose of his movement, singing songs, being on TV, and taking advantage of his members for sex. In 2010, a group called Raelian Leaks brought to light some harsh truths about Raelism. Around this time, Rael claimed membership of around 85,000 members worldwide. However, secured internal Raelian documents leaked by the group showed membership globally to realistically be around 15 to 20,000. The lack of physical evidence for Rael's extraordinary stories, the disturbing blurred lines surrounding underage people being exposed to sex, the cloning stories that were denounced as hoaxes, all of these things may have taken their toll after all, either reducing those membership numbers or keeping them relatively low. It's hard to pinpoint exact membership through the years, but today we do have certain barometers to measure membership, like social media. Rael's Facebook page is liked by 7,500 people. On YouTube, Rael TV has 5,000 subscribers. Hardly the numbers of a worldwide phenomenon. There's no doubt Rael has been able to gather large numbers of people to his movement. However, his allure seems to be waning as the years go on. Raelism in 2018 appears to be a shell of itself from yesteryear. More cracks in the armor appeared. A group of former Raelians claimed to have had his DNA tested. They claimed he was careless with DNA due to his many love affairs. The DNA test showed the genes of an ordinary man, with no trace of the Elohim. We don't know if the results of this test ever reached Rael's ears. He never responded to this group's claims, but they contain the word that he is most likely most afraid of. Ordinary. The future of Raelism is murky. The Raelians are currently based out of Las Vegas. They hold cellular transmissions or baptisms four times a year at a nearby mountain range, which they claim gives them the clearest reception to any nearby Elohim spaceships. Reports of their recent retreats tell of a small, disorganized group with no real hope of expansion. It doesn't sound like a movement that's been around for over 40 years, but one that's barely able to get off the ground. Estranged from his children, Rael does not have a ready-made successor, and at 71 years of age, it should be something he thinks about. His son Romuel has kept his distance in recent years. Dr. Bridget Boisselier, the CEO of CloneAid and Aurelian Bishop, may be a likely candidate, but nothing has been confirmed. It's also possible Rael doesn't care about having a successor. Raelism has always been about one thing, his own gratification. The thoughts and feelings of everyone else were always a distant second. As long as Rael was getting the adoration and gratification he desperately craved since his youth, it was mission accomplished. 
In June of 2017, Rael made a Facebook post ranting about his ex-wife, Sophie Denis Verville, living with another man. Considering his views on open sexuality, it was a pretty bold move for a man who runs a sex cult. He claimed he was bipolar, and she had been removed from his friend list, and that her DNA transmission to the Elohim had been canceled. After all the lovers, all the fame, and all the adoration from his followers, Rael found himself on Facebook, a sad old man screaming at his younger, prettier ex-lover who wanted nothing to do with him anymore. Social media pages for Sophie de Niverville still show her singing Raelian hymns, though they haven't been updated in a while. It could be that she's doing her best to stay out of Rael's line of sight. Rael is said to be married for a fourth time, although this is an unconfirmed rumor. His first wife, Marie Paul, has reported that both his children want nothing to do with him. Marie Paul said Aurora wanted to change her surname and disappear into anonymity. It's difficult to find anything about her online, so she may have been successful in that quest. It appears that Ramuel and their mother have done their best to slip back into ordinary life, away from the spotlight, while Rael continues his quest for followers in the Las Vegas desert. Faith is believing in something without evidence. Rael took that principle to an extreme degree. He preyed on people's desperate yearning to believe in the extraterrestrial and to believe in the extraordinary. And he milked it all for his own gain and his own personal pleasure. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. Some of you have asked how you can help the show. If you enjoy Cults, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. You can find Cults and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or on your favorite podcast directory. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Tim Davis and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 